verses 9 to 15, and especially verses 11 to 12, convey the central theme of Genesis chapter 35. We read in those verses another of God's appearances to Jacob. In verse 10, God reiterates the name change, which has already occurred. And then in verses 11 and 12, God reiterates the promises that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and even to Jacob himself. Over 20 years earlier, when Jacob was leaving Canaan, God appeared to him and made these same promises to him. Here again, he reiterates these promises. There's a gracious meeting of God with Jacob contained in verses 9 to 15. The promises made in verses 11 and 12 are the apex of that gracious meeting, the pinnacle of that gracious meeting. The summary blessings and substance of that gracious meeting. That section 9 to 15 and especially verses 11 and 12 convey the central theme of this chapter. God is going to be gracious with Jacob as he has been with Abraham and with Isaac. The same grace that God showed to his father and his grandfather He's going to show to Jacob. Everything else in this chapter is related to that central idea of God's grace to Jacob. God's grace is the foundation of all his covenantal dealings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's grace is the foundation of all his covenantal dealings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God made specific promises. God entered into covenant with them particularly and peculiarly. Them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those three men, and no more. The Abrahamic covenant was not made with the nation of Israel. It was made concerning the nation of Israel, but not with the nation of Israel. It was not made with the church. It was made concerning the church, but it wasn't made with the church. Let me explain. The average Israelite couldn't say that God has promised that their own descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Or that in their seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Nor can any church member say those things, now that Christ has come. So even Jacob's own son, say Zebulun, not Judah, but Zebulun, couldn't say, in my seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's Jacob's own son. Let alone just some random Israelite from the tribe of Gad or Dan. Neither could any church member in the Old Testament, any believer, say, 
In my seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God has promised it to me. God will make my descendants as numerous as the stars. Today, you or I can't say, certainly in my seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, for the Christ has already come. But neither can we claim those other promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of descendants and nations from our loins. We can't claim that. You see, so there were specific covenantal dealings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those men. Specific covenantal dealings with them. And they were predicated on grace. Grace. What was Abraham doing? What was Abraham doing when God called him to leave his homeland? He was worshipping foreign gods. Joshua 24. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. Grace. Grace was the foundation of God's covenantal dealings with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. In Genesis 17, God promised to Abraham that he would make him the father of a multitude of nations verse 5 that he would cause kings to come from Abraham and in verse 8 that the land of Abraham's sojournings would be given to him and to his offspring. The land of Canaan. In Genesis 26, God reiterated those same promises to Isaac. Verse 3, To you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The word's not used, but that's the prophecy about a king. The prophecy of a king. So kings, nations, lands. In Genesis 28, this is that account that I alluded to a few moments ago. Where Jacob's leaving Canaan. What does God say to him? Verse 13. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's a king again, a people, a land. And here in Genesis 35, 
God repeats the same things. The same things. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. The average Israelite, the average church member, is not promised land and nations and kings. But these things were promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Not because they merited these things, but by grace. Abraham was an idolater at the time that God called him. We've seen lots of sin as we've worked our way up till this chapter in Genesis. Abraham's sin, Isaac's sin, Jacob's sin. Grace is the foundation of these promises. Grace. Then to Ishmael and Esau and the nations which came from them, God was gracious. Common grace. Common grace. The peoples that came from Ishmael and Esau were not a people to be God's treasured possession from among all the peoples on the face of the earth. So God's fulfillment of His covenantal promises to make nations of Abraham's children and Isaac's and Jacob's. This fulfillment of those promises in Ishmael's seed and in Esau's was gracious. Ishmael didn't deserve it. Esau didn't deserve it. Gracious. To Israel, the first nation brought into special covenant with God. God was gracious. God was gracious to form them into a nation and to call them to be a special people, to choose them to be a special people from among the nations of the earth. They were put into a legal covenant, yes, but they were chosen by grace. Romans 10 speaks to the legality of the old covenant. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That covenant was legal. It was intended to communicate to them the the necessity of holiness, the need for a temple, a priest, a lamb. And those who had ears to hear and eyes to see perceived these things and rested their souls on the Messiah. But that doesn't change the fact that the old covenant was in itself a legal covenant. And yet they were called into that covenant. Into that relationship by grace. We read earlier in the service from Deuteronomy 7. That God didn't choose them because they were more in number than any other people. Rather they were the fewest of all peoples. But simply because the Lord loves them. Loved them. And was keeping the oath that he swore to their fathers. That the Lord made them a nation. God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Were gracious. Deuteronomy chapter 9 reiterates that point. Very clearly. Do not say in your heart after the Lord God has thrust them out. That is the nations out. The nations that were in the land of Canaan. 
after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Grace is the foundation of all God's covenant dealings. With Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with the nation that came from Ishmael, with the nation that came from Esau, with the nation that came from Israel. And to the church, which is another nation, according to 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. Though we're multi-ethnic, though we're not geographically defined, we are a nation. We are a nation that God has counts as one of the nations that he brought from Abraham's loins. We are children of Abraham. It is those who are of faith, Galatians tells us, that are children of Abraham. We are a nation to whom God has been gracious. God's covenantal dealings with us are predicated on grace. Not because we were something that God chooses, but because of His great love, to the praise of His glorious grace. Not because of our righteousness, for we are a stubborn people. Because of grace, God chose us. He gave us a mediator, as we talked about this morning, our Christ, the true priest, the true lamb, the true temple. He didn't owe us a Savior, of course, but He gave Him by grace to be ours. We are drawn by grace. John chapter 6, we read that no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent draws Him. But all whom the Father Gives will come. John six thirty seven. God will see to it that those people chosen by grace come. So we're drawn by grace to Christ. And then Jesus will not lose any who have come, but raise them up on the last day. John 6, 39. We're preserved by grace. God's grace is foundational to His covenantal dealings with us. Grace is therefore foundational to the original promises made to the patriarchs themselves. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Grace is the foundation of God's dealings with Ishmael and his descendants. Esau and his descendants. Israel and his descendants. The church. Grace is foundational to it all. To the promises made to the patriarchs 
and the fulfillment of those promises. Thus the repeated covenantal promises in the book of Genesis. Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, 26, 28, here again 35. These repeated covenantal promises are a refrain of grace. Like a chorus that we sing over and over again. God sings a refrain of grace, as it were, over and over again in the book of Genesis. Land, nations, kings. I will bless you by grace. By grace. By grace. Land, nations, kings. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Descendants as numerous as the stars. Land, grace, grace, grace. These repetitions of these covenantal promises are like a refrain of grace. A chorus that God sings over and over again throughout the book of Genesis. The whole Bible contains refrains of grace. Lord willing, over the next several decades, we're going to cover a lot of the Bible in the preaching ministry of this church. And over and over again, we're going to stumble upon refrains of grace. This is the way that God dealt not only with the patriarchs and the fulfillment of the promises made to them. But this is the way that God deals with all the people whom He's covenantally related to at every stage of redemptive history. This is the way that God deals with us. There are refrains of grace that God sings, as it were, over our lives, over and over again. In Christ Jesus, God has been gracious to us. God will bring to fulfillment all of the things that He has promised us in Him. And He reminds us of these things over and over again in Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoever trusts in Him shall not be put to shame. These are refrains of grace saying the same thing over and over again. We are sinners. We deserve hell. We deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. Because we have failed to offer up righteousness to God. Jesus has come and offered up the righteousness that we should have. Borne the punishment that we should have. Whoever believes in Him. Will be raised just as Christ was raised. God sings a refrain of grace. That refrain of grace. Over and over again. In Scripture. Scripture. 
just as he's saying these er, these early this early refrain of grace over and over again in Genesis. Refrains of grace run through the whole Bible. First in their seed forms in Genesis, and then in the full flower into the New Testament. It's the same song, but it's different movements, if you will. Early on, it's the seed in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In later scripture, it's worthy is the Lamb, Jesus of Nazareth. It's the same song, the same one, but a fuller development, a crescendo later on. But it's the same refrain of grace over and over again. We're reading one meta-narrative as we read this book. These refrains of grace, which occur in Genesis, are therefore highly relevant to us who live under the same refrains of grace that God sings yet today. God is going to be gracious with Jacob as he has been with Abraham and Isaac. This is what we see from verses 9 to 15, and especially verses 11 and 12. Everything else in this chapter is related to that. We see God being gracious to Jacob by persevering with him in spite of his sin in verses 1 to 4. Remember from last week that Jacob should have gone to Bethel in the first place. Not stopped in Shechem. There's that horrible incident where his daughter Dinah is raped. After this, God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God reminds Jacob of his duty. This is, this is a little chiding, if you will. It's not very harsh, but it's a reminder. Keep moving, go to Bethel. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. This seems a really commendable response from Jacob. He recognizes the holiness of God. Even as we talked about this morning, the necessity of pure worship. Put away the foreign gods. Change your garments, which are now stained by blood, right? From the murder of the Shechemites. Change your garments. Put away your false gods and let's go to Bethel. (laughs) And look at this. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in your ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Why? He's going to come back for them later? You see, why didn't he incinerate them? Or, or discard them? Jacob hid them. The only reason you hide them is if you don't want anyone else to take them so you can come back for them. And then you read later in the chapter, what did God say to him? Arise, go up to Bethel and worship there? Look at verse 1. 
not arise, go up to Bethel and worship there. Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. He was to worship, but he was to do more than worship. He was to dwell there. Verse 15, So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. Verse 16. You see that? They didn't dwell there. They didn't dwell there. So you see here, the theme of this chapter. God is going to be gracious to Jacob. But His grace is manifest in that in this chapter, Jacob is disobedient. So we see God's grace manifest. God sings His refrain of grace over Jacob. Even as Jacob manifests to understate the case an imperfect character. Sin, sinful character. God's grace is further manifest in His protection of Jacob. In verses 5 to 7. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Well, why would they pursue the sons of Jacob? Maybe because they slaughtered a whole city. As we saw last week, they had just cause to be angry about the rape of their sister. But they reacted in extreme measure. Rather than in just proportion. But yet God protects Jacob and his family. God sings this refrain of grace over Jacob and his family as he protects them. As they make their way through the land. God's grace is manifest in the establishment of Jacob's family as the locus of true religion on earth. Why is Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, with Jacob? You might not, you might not have considered that question on the first read-through. Remember, Jacob left alone over 20 years ago. And he still hasn't been to see his dad. So Jacob traveled north to Padan Aram. Then he started traveling south where Esau came up to meet him. And now Jacob's traveling west into the land where he's eventually going to come to his father, but he hasn't got there yet. So why is Deborah, his mom's nurse, with him? I think the best answer, we don't know for sure, but I think the best answer is the hypothesis that John Calvin gives us in his commentary. It's probably not that Isaac sent Deborah to help Jacob. Let's be honest, Deborah would have been an elderly woman, aging woman by this time. Over 20 years had elapsed since Jacob had left. Plus, Jacob has a large family now, lots of livestock, he's well off, God has prospered him. Sending a middle-aged to elderly woman on a long trek to meet up with Jacob to help him doesn't really make sense. So presumably Isaac didn't send her as if she'd be a great blessing. Presumably she didn't run away from Isaac and Rebecca after being with them for 20 years and haphazardly run into 
Jacob in the wilderness. Calvin surmises that it's, it's likely that she was a true worshiper of God. And that she knew that Jacob's family was going to be the locus of true religion on earth moving forward. Jacob have I loved, Esau I hated. As Rebecca has passed away and Isaac is aging and frail, she knows that where true religion is going to prosper and flourish is going to be in Jacob's family. And so she hears that he's coming and she willingly goes to be in the camp. We don't know that for sure. It's hypothesis, but I think it's the best hypothesis. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So she called its name, so he called its name Alan Bacchus. We don't even read about about Rebecca's death. But we read about her nurse. It seems fit that it seems that if the Lord saw fit to include something about Deborah's death, that she was a pious woman and that the Lord remembered her in scripture in a way that if we may say this reverently, he forgot to mention Rebecca after her grievous sin in deceiving Isaac. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Rebecca's nurse is remembered while she herself is forgotten in the pages of Holy Writ. So I think that's the most reasonable hypothesis. God's grace is manifest in that choosing of Jacob's family to be the locus of true religion on earth. Why Jacob and not Esau? Why, why even Jacob's father, Isaac, and not Ishmael? Why this family and not that family? Grace. Grace. And then God's grace is manifest toward the end of the chapter, after the section where God meets with Jacob. In the completion of Jacob's family, Jacob's descendants. We see here, finally, that the sons of Jacob are twelve. Verse 22. Benjamin is born. Obviously, these twelve boys become the twelve tribes of Israel. And most of us are familiar with how things play out from there. God makes a nation of this man, Israel. A nation which is also called in later portions of scripture the children of Israel. The twelve tribes. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. God's grace is manifest in this passage in the establishment of essentially the nation of Israel. Those things which he promised to Abraham, but Abraham never saw. Those things which he promised to Isaac, but did not fulfill in Isaac's generation. 
are now being fulfilled in Jacob's. A nation is born here at the end of Genesis 35. We read here of the 12 sons of Israel, but looking through a different lens, we read here of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God's grace is manifest. God's grace is manifest then in his perseverance with Jacob, his protection of Jacob, the establishment of his family as the locus of true religion on earth, and the establishment of the nation of Israel, which is the beginning of his fulfillment of the promises made to the patriarchs themselves. As I mentioned earlier, we are organically connected to Jacob's family, to Abraham himself. We who are of faith, though we're not ethnic Jews, though we're not the old covenant nation of Israel, we are the true Israel. We are the sons of Abraham. It's those who are of faith. It's the same refrain of grace, as I said earlier, that God is singing, even now, as He was singing back in these early pages. It's the same grace that we live under, which made these promises in the first place, and which fulfilled them in the formation of this nation. We could likewise say that God perseveres with the church in spite of our sin. As He persevered with Jacob in spite of his sin, so God perseveres with us in spite of ours. As God protected Jacob, so He protects His church. God's protection of Jacob didn't mean that he never suffered, that he never struggled. His daughter was raped. His son was sold into slavery in Egypt by his own sons, his own brothers. Doesn't mean Jacob never suffered, but he was never exterminated from the earth. He was never crushed by his difficulties. And so it is with the church. She suffers. And yet God preserves her. God protects her. God watches over her. God has established the church as the locus of true religion on earth. In this day, as Jacob's family was the locus of true religion on earth in that day. And God continues to fulfill the promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the church as He began to fulfill them in the nation of Israel. Type has reached anti-type. Seed has reached flower. But God continues to fulfill those gracious promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob way back when by means of Christ and the covenant that He mediates. And so we read here in this chapter about a refrain of grace that God sings to Jacob after having sung it to his father, Isaac, and his father, Abraham, before him. This was early in the song. It was the seed form of the refrain of grace. We're later in the song, 
a crescendo has built lyrically there's more specificity and development but God continues to sing a refrain of grace over us God's grace in this passage is amazing as he perseveres with Jacob in spite of his sin as he protects Jacob as he establishes Jacob's family as the locus of true religion and as he begins to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's grace continues to be amazing as God perseveres with the church in spite of our sin, as God protects the church, as God establishes the church as the locus of true religion on the earth in our day, as God continues to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to us, for us, by means of Christ and His new covenant.